Hello and welcome back to the Forsters More Than Law podcast. I'm Miri Stickland, Knowledge Development Lawyer at the Commercial Real Estate Team. And I'm joined today by Vicky Ducrow, who's head of our planning team. And alongside Vicky is Laura Parrish, who's senior associate in our planning team. Thank you both for joining me. That's all right. Hi, everyone. So it's been quite a whirlwind few months in the planning sphere. So I thought um, we should just dive straight in and ask Vicky um, if she can summarise what's been going on. Uh, in no more than 200 words. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, right, succinct. Um, well, I think I, in the industry, we're all really concerned that at the start of COVID, the government was very slow in producing anything on how COVID was going to impact the planning system and how we're going to deal with the fact that local authorities are no, no longer able to have face-to-face committee meetings, consultations, things like that. And we were quite concerned that it was getting delayed. People worried about planning permissions where the implementation period is due to expire during the first lockdown and then suddenly I appreciate the government had a lot to do they woke up and thought oh yes planning we need to sort that out and over the summer we had a raft of not just dealing with the immediate Covid related issues but also additional far-reaching reforms to the planning system and I hate to say it's the classic opening paragraph of any planning consultation or planning reform document that says they want to speed up the planning system, make it more transparent and improve delivery, which I say they must copy and paste from every single document. And it's the same justification explanation here. We have a huge housing crisis um, that's not been helped by the delays around Brexit, where the industry paused to see what was going to happen. There were further delays in the development world around the last election, seeing what that would happen with that. And then again, we've had obviously COVID has further delayed things with the closure of construction sites and the knock on effect with residential sales being delayed when people can actually view properties face to face in person. So I think all that combined has meant the government's thought, right, we really need to tackle this. So they come up with this raft of measures, um, some of them just amending existing or adding new rights into existing legislation. But we also have the white paper that proposes in their eyes, um, um, ripping up of the current rule book and starting again. Boris labelled it the most fundamental reforms of the planning system since 1947. So that's what we're looking at at the moment. That's what we're trying to get our head around and understanding what it means. And I think a lot of the concern around, is this the right time for such reforms to come in? The development industry notoriously likes certainty. And is this the right time to rip everything up? One of the reforms that's already come in, so as of 1st of September 2020, are the quite sweeping changes to the use classes order. So Laura, can you give us a background? I'm sure most people are relatively familiar, but what the UCO looks like pre-reform and what the main changes are? Yeah, so um, the use classes order has always been used to categorise uses into different classes. So uses which fall within a particular class are allowed to change to another use within that class without the need for planning permission. Prior to the changes, there were lots of different use classes, separate use classes, for example, for retail, for restaurant, for takeaway use, um, and a myriad of other uses. The new changes essentially amalgamate many of these uses into three new use classes. One of them is class E, commercial use class. This is a new town centre commercial use and allows retail, leisure, business, uh, uses that were historically had their own use class, now all sit within class E. Shops, restaurants, offices, financial, professional services, 
medical uses and any other services which is appropriate to provide in a commercial business or service locality. So They're it's all- incredibly sort of far reaching, isn't it? I mean, that's the amalgamation of, of a number of use classes before and presumably causing quite a lot of consternation for sort of landlord clients. Yeah, I think it depends who you are. Um, the purpose of the changes was to support the high street revival and allow greater flexibility. And there are some clients who are really happy with this flexibility that Class E now offers. Clients who, for example, have office space that they're struggling to rent out now can use that office space for any other purpose within the new Class E. So it just gives them a a much greater flexibility in terms of how they use their space. But other landlord clients have been concerned that tenants are able to change the use of their properties without the need for any formal planning permission. So any changes within the new use classes are automatic and you, they don't even require prior approval from the local planning authority. We've sort of already touched on this actually in your summary, but they do have that benefit of flexibility. Um, but what are the potential pitfalls of, of the of the changes? From a practical point of view, I think we have to be careful about whether or not we can actually take advantage of of the new use classes and have to consider whether there are any conditions in existing planning permissions which might actually restrict the use. Um, so from a practical point of view, I think just to take a step back and review the position, but um, assuming that you can go ahead, there are a few pitfalls which I think the government needs to be aware of and and will sort of come out <laughs> in the wash, so to speak, um, once these things work through the courts. And one of these is, is just that both landlords and local planning authorities have much less control over the process. Um, and now it's possible, for example, to change from retail to restaurant use without any form of prior approval. There's no control over noise, um, odours, any of the type of sort of side effects of a restaurant use that the local planning authority used to be able to control through the prior approval process. We're likely to see an increase in nuisance claims as a result. The other factor, which I don't think has been fully considered by the government in making these changes is that office uses, including out-of-town business parks, would fall within the new Class E. And it would technically now be possible to change those out-of-town office spaces into retail, out-of-town retail, without going through the sequential test that was set out in the MPPF. Local planning authorities have always had a high level of control over out-of-town retail in order to protect the high street. So a side effect of this measure to allow greater flexibility to protect the high street might actually be harming the high street by taking retail out of the town centres. As well as the new very wide reaching class E, there are some other new classes. Do you want to just talk about those briefly, Laura? Yes, so there's two new broad use classes in the new use classes order. There's class F1, which is learning and non-residential institutions. So this amalgamates museums, art galleries, libraries, and other residential educational uses into one use class. And the other new use class is a is a local community use class F2, which is intended to protect those local community uses to, to prevent change of use. 
So that would include community halls, rural shops, um, and swimming pools and other areas used for outdoor sports. There's also, um, it's worth noting that a number of the used classes that used to have their own class within parts A and D, for example, takeaway uses or pubs and bars, which used to be A5 or A4, have now become sui generis uses with the effect that no changes of use to or from these uses fall within permitted development. So express planning permission will now be required in order to change to those uses. So just to mention, Laura, that there's been a judicial review challenge to the use classes order and permitted development rights changes. I know there's been a recent update on that. Can you just um, fill us in as to where we are with it now? Yes, so the judicial review hearing was heard on the 14th of October and we've just got the judgment through this week on the 17th of November. The judges have dismissed the judicial review on all grounds. So for the time being, the new legislation will remain in force. Whilst we await the outcome of any appeal, because the claimant has said that they will appeal this as they consider it to be on the wrong side of the public interest. So whilst we await the outcome of an appeal, there is a residual risk that the statutory instruments may still be quashed and that any action taken in accordance with the new use class changes or the new permitted development rights would therefore not be legal. Our clients have been concerned about this and we've made it clear that the risk must be factored in when making decisions on whether or not to proceed with changes of use or works which rely on the new permitted development rights in the meantime. But our feeling is that if an appeal were to be successful, the government would take steps to protect anyone who has relied on the new legislation in the meantime, as this is clearly the direction that the government wants to take going forward. Great. Thank you, Laura. So, Vicky, back to you. Uh, we're going to talk also about the uh, permitted development right changes, which you mentioned at the at the sort of top, top of the programme. <laughs> yeah, so the government in there sort of aimed to tackle the housing crisis as Sarah said, gone about in a rather odd way. We've seen an increase in um, permitted development rights being granted and made available for those people looking to convert to residential um, uses. So the most controversial one has been the Office to Residential Permitted Development Right. And as I say, it's quite interesting the government's pursuing this path because there's been a lot of debate about actually, does it generate the quantity of housing we need in order to make up our housing shortfall? Also, the government's focus is so much on residential that actually have they done enough analysis around the use classes that will be lost or the buildings with that use will be lost as a result of these conversions, these utilisation of permitted development rights to residential. And the last one is that because these don't require planning permission, it's just permitted development rights and they do require prior approval. The council is very limited as to the nature of the conditions they can impose on any permitted development, exercise of any permitted development rights and the grant of any prior approval. And that links also to the fact that on residential, they cannot require affordable housing. There is no SIL payment. They cannot require 106 to be entered into. So this is housing that is coming forward without actually mitigating the impact of that change of use. And so I think a lot of the industry have found it quite odd that the government's pursuing this approach. Um, another concern, they actually commissioned an independent review and then sat on it for ages and only recently published it and that was quite critical about the quality of the housing that's coming out of as well so 
we've come across examples where obviously not our own clients, but you know, other clients looking to be concerned about developments coming forward in their area, where some of the residential units that are being provided don't have natural daylight in some of the rooms. Mm. So the government has started to address this, but it's very slow. Um, so as part of this sort of um, permitted development rights package that they introduced, they've now going to require adequate natural light query what adequate natural light will end up meaning and the idea is then now I think the government announced in September that they'll introduce the space standards national space standards will apply to permitted development rights office to you know sort of residential conversions as well and that's that means a minimum square footage for residential units Exactly, yes, for your rooms within the residential unit and things. So it's trying to provide a level of quality to the end product that's coming out. Um, so I say, notwithstanding a lot of industry and political concerns about relying on permitted development rights, the government introduced this idea that not only can you now convert office to residential, but you can actually demolish an existing office block and rebuild it as residential, which I think is quite far reaching to do that within the scope of permitted development rights. There are various restrictions around it. So it's linked to, it can only be a single purpose-built detached block of flats or a single detached building established for any of the B1, or used to be B1 uses before we had the introduction of the E-class. And there are um, conditions around the age of the building, whether it's listed, the size of the building. There has been quite a lot of industry concern about this saying okay on the one hand you're saying we need this to provide residential accommodation this is a really good way of repurposing existing office blocks that actually weren't fit for accommodation conversion and it's better just demolish and rebuild but at the same time actually the number of um, aspects you need to submit to get your prior approval are so extensive that query whether it's much quicker and much more streamlined than purely applying for planning permission so again, it seems a slightly odd way the government's going about it. You either streamline the process and grant somebody permitted development rights, but you need to make sure that the quality of accommodation, you've had a more holistic view to yeah, the impacts yeah. of this, or you say, actually, no, you need to go off and get planning permission for it. And presumably, you know, you were talking about the lack of um, 106 and SIL payments. So presumably there's some friction between the centralised and local government over, over that change. Oh, completely. And when the government introduced the Office to Residential Permitted Development Rights, the vast majority of the local authorities applied for an Article 4 direction for their their area, at least some, if not all, of their area. And that would mean that the Permitted Development Rights wouldn't apply to the area for which the Article 4 direction has been obtained. So you would still need planning permission. That was the authority's way of retaining control over it. But the local authorities were slapped down by central government on that, and only very few Article 4 directions were actually grant were permitted so we're anticipating a lot more requests for the article 4 directions by local authorities to take back some of this control and as i say local authorities are more have a more holistic approach to their local plans and their planning needs of their area in terms of the housing the office what other uses you might need in the area and this government's focus on residential almost at the cost of other uses will be a concern to local authorities and as well as well as the PD rights that you've talked about, there are some other PD rights which are relevant, particularly to residential clients. That's right. And again, this is causing a lot of concern for residential owners, especially people within flats or converted buildings. 
under the um, well, they're not proposals under the new legislation. Up to two additional stories can be added to residential properties. So we've had a number of queries from tenants in flats where the landlord has applied for prior approval to add these additional floors onto an existing residential block. And obviously the the tenants are very concerned about that will mean in terms of impacts on amenity and everything else. Again, there are restrictions around the operation of that right in terms of the age of the property, the fact that you can't add on additional stories where it's already been added on in the past and the overall height can't exceed, I think it's 18 metres. So there are restrictions, but again, I think it is a concern for people. And again, I mean, I query what the government's really seeking to do here. Will this really generate a lot more residential accommodation? I don't know whether it's designed to be sort of the idea of the concept of multi-generational living. If you can make your house bigger, you might be able to accommodate more generations of your household within that. I don't know whether that's what they're looking at, but you either get, make your own property as a single use owner bigger, or you're adding more flats on, but the flats themselves aren't necessarily going to be a substantially improve our housing shortfall. But it is fair to say that the government's proposed changes are not going to end there because we've had the publication of the planning for the future white paper so that was published was it beginning yes. of august yes it was been delayed because of covid and everything else so we're expecting it over the summer and then they finally published it in august and then there was public consultation on the paper which closed towards the end of october and as you said vicky it, the proposals are are they're designed to streamline the planning system but but what reforms what reforms do you expect to be brought forward? I think speaking to a lot of our clients and I sit on the NLA expert panel on planning and we did a consultation response for our members and looking at that everyone seems to be quite concerned about the way the questions were phrased in the white paper and whether they were quite leading in some instances, sort of suggesting that you know this was the right way to go and the planning system was all wrong. Yeah. And then I think, that, so there was that concern. And then there was the concern around the proposals could be very far reaching and could reform things. So for example, the zoning approach, the idea that every single piece of land within a local authority area would be carved up into one of three zones that could substantially cut out local input and involvement in the planning process that could be very far reaching but it's very difficult to be able to provide a genuine sort of well-considered consultation response where you don't know the detail of how that will actually work in practice again take the infrastructure aspects where they're looking to completely scrap community infrastructure levy sill and potentially 106 agreements that in theory seems a good idea but in practice, how will that actually be drafted? And I, there is some commentary around that some in the industry have said that the government doesn't need primary legislation for that, for the um, removal of SIL and the introduction of a new infrastructure levy. They may need it for zoning, but they probably don't need it for the infrastructure levy. In that basis, the government could decide to push forward that element of the white paper sooner rather than later, because it's something they can do relatively quickly. I would really caution against that because while SIL definitely has its faults and the government again had an independent review that said, look, in some aspects it's working. For example, Crossrail 
how they funded that through the mayoral seal has actually been quite effective. Everyone knows where it is. It's going towards a clear delivery of a, a bit of infrastructure that everyone accepts probably will increase property values around along the line. So I think yeah. people accept that. It doesn't really work in local authorities where you then have a big disconnect between, say, a residential development coming forward, the developer pays money towards schools, but then the still doesn't have to be spent on schools in the immediate area of that residential development. There's no time frame and things. So it's very, there's a lot of disengagement between when the money's paid and actually when it's spent and the local of, you know, community seeing, realizing the benefits of that development. Yeah. So I think, so still as say has its faults, but we finally got used to it. It finally works and the legislation is extremely complicated, but it's had to be amended every single year since it was introduced in 2010. It was not straightforward legislation to draft and we've had to keep refining it each year to get it right. And we're nearly there. And the idea of scrapping that for something that's all based on the overall development value as assessed at the point of occupation, that in itself, the viability has been another area that's taken so much time and discussion when you submit a planning application and in the drafting of the 106 agreement, where you're having to draft for viability reviews. That's what takes the time. The idea the government's going to suddenly come up with something that will deal with all of this and they'll do it very quickly. I think these planning reforms have shown the government can rush legislation without necessarily thinking everything through. And my concern is they'll look to push something through quickly to show they're really trying to tackle the planning system and speed it up and streamline it and yeah. modernize it but the effect will be they'll push it through without properly thinking about the um, cause and effect and without getting the legislation absolutely right so we don't have changes year on year to the legislation to make it work so that being that being the case obviously at the moment they're analyzing the responses to the consultation is there any indication as to when that sort of phase is is going to be complete no and you know given the government some credit they obviously have a number of other things on their plate at the moment to deal with so bearing in mind the white paper itself was delayed by a number of months i think even any deadline the government comes up with should be taken with a sort of relative pinch of salt they tend to give their deadlines, not necessarily by months, but by seasons. And it's amazing how long spring or winter can last in terms of <laughs> response time. So I think, yes, we shouldn't expect anything soon. I think it is something that clearly Boris himself, he wrote the introduction to the white paper, is very keen on pursuing. And I think it probably will be quite high on the agenda, but he's got Brexit to deal with. We've got to get through this lockdown, this second wave of COVID, and I can't see anything happening soon. Okay. Even if the, they do bring forward primary legislation for, for example, the zoning aspects. They were the idea in the white paper is they allow local authorities up to 36 months to produce the new local plans that will have the zoning aspects in it. So again, we're not going to see anything, any changes to how planning applications are determined for quite a while. So watch this space. But, but not too closely. Yeah, you, you can go away, have a cup of tea and things probably won't have changed. <laughs> so finally, Vicky, the government has asked the public to take part in a survey on the planning system in England and the proposed reforms. Can you give us a bit more detail around that? That's right, Miri. So earlier in November, the government published an online survey and that survey closed on the 12th of November. So members of the public haven't got 
long to respond in. It's very much aimed at the members of the public and their experiences of the planning system. So questions around have people been involved in making their own planning application? Have people commented on other applications? Have you been involved in a local plan? So it's a very sort of light touch, have the public um, interact with the planning system, what are their thoughts and how a general comment on how could it be improved. So the idea is that that will feed into the government's response to the consultation, or, say, that was more aimed at the, at the um, planning market and development industry and combining the two when, when they come to um, provide their response on, say, that both the consultations and then that will determine how they take the proposals forward. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, if listeners want to access any of our other podcasts, they're available on SoundCloud or your other usual podcast platform. Uh, you can also follow us on LinkedIn, um, Instagram, Facebook. I don't think we're on TikTok yet, but we might get there at some point. <laughs> and in the meantime, thanks again for joining me. Bye. Forster's Northern Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The Northern Law podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted whether in whole or part without Forster's LLP's prior written consent.